pray to start because we really need God to help us understand his word and drive it into our minds and hearts so that we um, do it. So have it and pray together. Loving Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to gather together and hear you speak to us. And we pray that that would happen powerfully, Father. That as we open up your word, your spirit would uh, write it on our mind and our hearts. Please help us to know how we can respond to you with all our might and enable us to do that. Amen. Well, what I actually want you to do is to discuss with the person next to you, what do you reckon it would be like to meet God? What do you reckon it would be like to meet God? Go, you've got 30 seconds. table at Macquarie Uni where we just sort of out, out there on the campus and we've got this big chart uh, that uh, represents different world views and we want to know what people believe and why. And one of the questions we like to ask them is, so what, what do you reckon it would be like to meet God? And <clears throat> it's amazing how common the response is. So, so the other week I was speaking to this young lady and she said, oh, I think it'll be beautiful. I think it'll be beautiful. I think it'll be a, a wonderful, peaceful feeling to encounter God. And so many people talk about it in those terms, that it would be uh, deeply uh, warming inside the soul. It would be an experience of exhilaration and thrill. Others talk about it as uh, an experience of tranquility and calmness. But what if I was to suggest to you that it's actually none of those? That if we were to come into the full presence of God, it would be an experience of absolute terror and deep-seated dread. That's what the Bible says, friends. We're going to see that today. Point one, God made us to be like Him and with Him. God made us to be like Him and with Him. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 if you're a quick flipper. He made us firstly to be like Him. In Genesis chapter 1, after creating everything else, God creates people, Adam and Eve. In chapter 1, verse 26, God, then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now notice what image instantly refers to. God says, let us make man in our image. And we go, what does that mean? Does that mean we look like God? Or that we... What does that mean? Well, the very next phrase tells you or hints at what it means. 
in our likeness, again, and it says, let them rule. God made people to be like him in that they rule like him. He's the granddaddy ruler, and we're the mini-me rulers, if you like. That's what image means, friends, in the Bible. It means to rule. But notice, it's not just to rule like God. It's let them rule. So we're ruling in relationship. Adam and Eve together, ruling relationally. And one thing that I won't prove right now, but later, which is not actually in there, we'll find it in the New Testament, is the notion of righteous, righteousness. That God made us to, remember the three R's, rule righteously in relationship. That's what image means. When you fill it out with the rest of the Bible's information on what image means. To rule righteously in relationship. That's what God's like. He's the ruler. He's completely righteous, perfect. And he's a relationship. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Okay? In some sense, we reflect. Obviously, God's much bigger and better at it. But in some sense, we reflect God's nature in ruling righteously in relationship. The point about that that I want to bring out is that we were made to be like him. In character. Righteous. We were once righteous people. Adam and Eve were supremely righteous people. In their conduct, in their behaviour, in their wisdom, in their speaking, in the way they loved. They were holy. Point two. God made us not just to be like him, but to be with him. To rule under him in relationship with him, though. Not independently of him. So you see that in chapter two, where God's speaking to them in the garden and um, equipping them. That they were to be God's people... Under God's rule, enjoying relationship with God, each other, and the world. By the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, you get a wonderful picture of uh, paradise, as it were. Everything is good. People and God are getting on well. People and people are getting on well. People in the environment are getting on well. It's all fantastic. But, point two, because people, we, rebelled against God, guess what? We're not like him anymore. And we're not with him anymore. Those two things have been destroyed. Point two, one, we're not like him. Have a look at the nature of the rebellion in chapter 3 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. Look at the nature of the sin there. The serpent tempts in verse 4. He says, you will surely not die. The serpent said to the woman, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the area we're not allowed to be like God in. <laughs> uh, to cut a long story short, I think that means to determine what is right and wrong for yourself. To take on the, the um, prerogative and responsibility of ruling the world your own way. Establishing your own ground rules for life. Meaning. That's wrong. <laughs> That's God's prerogative and right. He says what's right and wrong. He lays down the ground rules. He tells us how to live. And we're to joyfully submit to that. But Adam and Eve, they said, no, stop that. We're going to... We, we want to be independent from God and His rules. We want to be able to do it our way. That's the nature of sin. It's, it's, an, it's a breaking out and to, to be autonomous. To be independent. It's a relationship problem. And so evil entered the world. I mean, it was already in the world with the snake, but it entered into the human experience. We became evil. We 
because of our rebellion against God, because we wanted to ignore Him and do it our own way, we became corrupted. And the image of God was shattered. That doesn't mean it was lost completely, but it was, it was broken, it was shattered, it was distorted. And how does God respond to it? Well, look, He gets angry, doesn't He? He gets angry. He comes looking for Adam and Eve. They try to hide. <laughs> he accuses them, rightly. And then he judges them with death and separation. He casts them out of his presence in chapter 3, verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. Okay, you're going to die now. But also, verse 23, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Death and separation. That's the ultimate judgment. That's how God expresses his justice. That's what God does when he gets angry at us. Now, don't think for a minute that God's anger is like yours or mine. I don't know about you, but uh, there are a lot of people who struggle with the concept that God is a wrathful God. He gets angry. Um, I'll say a couple of things on that. The first thing I'll try to uh, make people realise is that when, when you're ignored by someone who shouldn't be ignoring you, you get, you get angry too. <laughs> I mean, if I, you know, if I ignored my wife, uh, not just give her the silent treatment, but ignored her, and she'd done nothing wrong with her, how would she feel? She'd be upset by that, wouldn't she? She walks past me, I just don't even look at her. She tries to talk to me, I walk the other way. She comes home ready for a big hug, I run away. I mean, you know, imagine that for one day, that'd be painful. Two weeks, three months, a year. Ah! She's getting angry. You know how that feels? How do you think God feels? He made us for a relationship. He does nothing wrong. He loves us. He's, and we just we turn away. And we totally ignore him. Of course you can understand at some level that uh, God is going to be upset by that. That that is actually a universal injustice to treat God like that. But secondly, it's important to point out that God's anger is not anything like our anger. Our anger is tainted by sin. We fly off the handle so easily and we give back double for what we received and it's not just and it's not fair and it's not measured. The other day my wife was driving to uni to pick me up and this hoon <laughs> on, with pea plates right, was driving behind her, obviously late to a lecture or something. And she was driving 50 because the speed limit says 50. She's got kids in the car. She's in a tranquil mood. She's driving 50, singing some songs in the car. And this guy's behind her flashing lights going, come on, come on, beeping. She's looking around going, I'm driving 50. I'm keeping the law. And then he just sort of speeds out when he's got a chance because there were cars coming this way. And, and it was dangerous when he did it because it was a car coming on, he, he went straight past her, and my wife got a little bit upset by that. So she beeped the horn, politely. <laughs> she said, she went, beep, you know, as if to say, tut tut. This guy pulled over. And he got out of the car, just as my wife was driving past, and he's like, you know, with the middle finger, shouting. Well, what is that? My wife was scared. I felt angry when I heard that. He caused the... <laughs> it's his fault. And he gets angry when it doesn't work out for him. But that's, that's what our anger is like, isn't it? Just like that bloke sometimes. I mean, I've had road rage. You've probably had it. 
If you don't have it, come to Sydney. <laughs> we, we, we love giving it. I mean, we got, we got peak hour up there. You guys have peak minute in Geelong, right? But peak, it's just terrible. And, and you get angry. And you shout. And you spit chips. And you pull hair. And you get it. That's what our anger is like. And we say things that we shouldn't say. And we, God's anger is not like that at all. It's slow. It's measured. It's perfect justice. God's anger is perfectly measured opposition to evil. And I want him to oppose evil, don't you? Even if it lives in my heart. Oh, that's the scary thing. We're not like God anymore. God's angry at humanity. And so we're not with him, 2.2. God repels us. He's holy. We're not. Holy means set apart. Different. Other. He's, he's not like us in his being because he's a super being. He's eternal and infinite and all that. And, and he's not like us in character because he's pure, pure perfect morality and we're not. Those two things don't go together. Sinful people and holy God, they don't work. It's like oil and water. that They repel each other. And so we cannot be with each other and that's why we're kicked out of the garden. And now we cannot approach God for that, for that reason. Because we're not like God, we can't be with God. That's how it works, friends. We're not like him, so we can't be with him. We've rebelled against him. We've become corrupt. We cannot come into his presence without exploding into a million pieces. You see, Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13. I'll read your version. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent and the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Just that first bit. And my version says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. He cannot, he cannot tolerate it. He hates evil. Because it is inherently wrong. And, ah! We don't understand this. Because we are not super beings who are completely holy. <laughs> but I heard a great illustration. And when you hear a great illustration from another preacher, you steal it. Okay? You steal it. You might have heard this one. Because I'm sure Dave's probably stolen it too. <laughs> Was it? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it's, the, it's the dirt under the fingernails illustration. Have you heard that one? It's actually a good way of explaining the difference between God and people. So, everyone, have a look at your, your fingernails right now. Put your hand up if you've got dirt on them. Okay, now, good. We've got some honest people here. Now, hands down. Now, hands up if you, if you realised you'd had, you, had, you had dirt on them. You guys look at your nails and go, ooh, they're dirty. Okay. Blokes? No, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's right. You, you, what I'm trying to say is you hardly even notice whether you've got a piece of dust or dirt under your fingernails. You don't care. I mean, unless they're chocker full. You know, oh, look, there's some dark lines on the end of my fingers. I've got to wash my hands, right? But, you know, I've got dirt under my fingers now, and I don't care. I'm not going to go picking them or filing them or whatever you do to clean them. I don't care. I can live with it. I can tolerate it. But take one speck of dirt from under this nail and put it in my eye. It's horrible. You cannot tolerate it. You've got to get it out. You're under the tap like this. 
you eye down like this and your fingers pulling up, you're trying to get this stupid piece of dirt, dust, sand, or whatever it is out of your eye. God is an eyeball. You are a fingernail. He cannot tolerate one speck of sin, and nor should he. But we are fingernails. We just grow up in a culture of sin. We are sinful. We don't even notice it most of the time unless it's really dirty. People don't like to think they're bad, but that's because they're fingernails. <laughs> they don't realise how God, how holy God is, that He is extremely sensitive to sin and He must oppose it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says this about God. He, he alone is immortal and He lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. God is so gloriously holy, so perfect and powerful and majestic that you know he's like a billion times brighter than the sun in a sense. And you just can't you can't sort of run up to God and go, Hey you going, man? You know, you're gonna get blown away. Unapproachable. No one can see him. And yet, the Bible says, here's the problem summarized in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, the second half of the verse, Hebrews 12, verse 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That doesn't look like the verse. That's right. If it's not there, just listen to what I'm saying. Hebrews 12, 14, the second half. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You see, you've got to be like Him to be with Him. If you're not holy, like God... You cannot see God. You cannot experience God. You cannot be with God. And so that's why. Have you ever wondered, well, why can't I have a greater experience of God in this age? I've wondered that. And that's a godly desire. I want to experience the fullness of God. But if I did, you know what? I'd probably blow up. Because I'm not in the garden anymore. And I'm not in the future heavenly paradise. There's a necessary distance Created by that fact. He's holy. I'm sinful. I can't approach him unless I'm holy. Without holiness, no one's going to see the Lord. John chapter 1 verse 18 says this. No one can see God. It says no one has ever seen God. But then it goes on to say, and yet Jesus has revealed God to us. God has stepped down, as it were, in a capacity that we can handle to encounter him. Jesus. When the Bible says no one has ever seen God, by the way, some of you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute. I know there's a few places in the Bible where people have seen God. Ha! Huh, the Bible contradicts itself. It's not true. Well, no, 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 no. You've just misunderstood. When it says that people have seen God, when it says no one has seen God, it means no one has seen God in his fullness. And when it describes people seeing God... You look up every reference. It's never a full saying of God. I, I want to take you through some references to what it would be like to see God in the Bible and what it is like to see God. Okay? Remember that lady I talked to? It would be beautiful. It would be wonderful. It would be giving me an inner peace, uh, feeling of peace. Well, let's have a look. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, what happened after the, after the fall, after humanity rebelled against God? What was it like? Well, they hid from God because they were scared. That wasn't a beautiful, beautiful, peaceful feeling, was it? 
Or in Exodus chapter 3, my second one. Exodus chapter 3. I'm just going to whip through these. Exodus 3, verse 5 to 6, where Moses comes before the burning bush and God says, Don't come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Don't come too close, Moses. Then in verse 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses comes into the presence of God. He, he can't, he, he has to hide his face. He's fearful. The fourth example, sorry, third example is Exodus chapter 20, when Israel gather around Mount Sinai. God's rescued them out of Egypt. He gathers them around, and they are packing death, literally. They are. If you read the narrative, it's amazing. Start in chapter 19 and read all the way through. A summary verse comes in Exodus 20, verse 18. When they saw the smoke and the fire and the thunder, they trembled with fear and stayed at a distance. Don't go near God. God even tells them, don't come near or else you'll explode. Or Isaiah 6, the fourth example. Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah the prophet is given a glimpse of God in the temple. And there's angels flying around the throne and they're shouting. What are they shouting? Holy, holy, holy. Alright, good. I'm glad that's what they're saying because this weekend's on holy. So it's a relevant verse. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And, and the, the whole temple shakes, the foundation shakes. It's like an earthquake. You've got to picture this, right? And Isaiah's reaction, what is it? What does Isaiah, what does Isaiah do? Because he goes, oh, this is wonderful. I'm such a... Uh, I'm in a new age moment of exhilaration here. Whoa. No, no. Verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. If you see God, it is a fearful experience. You know you deserve to be judged because of your unworthiness. You are not worthy to come into his presence. It's a terrifying experience. Or think of even Jesus, you know, he's in human form, so he's not as scary as sort of like the blinding sun. But because he is God, he still impacts people in the same way. So in Luke chapter 5, where they're fishing and they can't catch anything, and Jesus says, hey guys, I know you've been trying all night, but just chuck it over the other side. You can just imagine the disciples thinking, we are professional fishermen We've tried the other side. We've been there all night. Jesus said, just check it over the other side. It'll work. And they haul in a massive bunch of fish when they do it. Peter's reaction in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. It's amazing. He has just seen God in action. Something of God's otherness has just broken out before him. He knows he's in the presence of someone else, not just a man. He's overcome by a sense of unworthiness, utter unworthiness, and insignificance, and lowliness, and uncleanliness. He does not deserve Jesus' friendship. Go away from me, Lord. I cannot be in your presence. You see what it's like to encounter God? What it's like to come into the presence of God? John tells us in John chapter 3, verse 20, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We fear the judgment. Or the last one we'll look at, Revelation chapter 1. 
It's an amazing vision that John is given. Basically, Jesus standing before him in all his glory. And uh, do read it later because it's quite, um, quite uh, amazing. But again, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> That's what he sees Jesus. And he drops dead. And Jesus says something beautiful. He touches him and says, don't be afraid. Get up. You see, God's holiness means he is set apart from us. He's morally perfect and different. And we are sinful and corrupt. And we cannot come together in fellowship. Now, just before we go on to see how God solves this problem, it's worth maybe upgrading your version of God. Because maybe you have a granddaddy God with a big smile and a lollipop to give you or something. You know, that's, that's nice, but our God is in a consuming fire according to the end of Hebrews 12. He's powerfully and majestically opposed to all evil. You can't just treat him lightly. You can't just waltz into him cavalierly and say, Hello, Daddy! <laughs> he is awesome. And we must respect him. We must not domesticate him. He's big and fearworthy. So, back to the talk. We've reached a bit of an impasse here because we're seen as God's holy and well, unless we're holy, we're not going to... It seems like there's no hope when you read the Bible. For we will face judgment as we deserve it, and that's it. But there is hope. There is hope. Remember that verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness no one will see the Lord. So a possible ray of hope is this. If we become holy, then we could see the Lord. So let's try to be holy. Let's do lots of good works and religious things and try to be morally perfect. Let's try it, friends. Oh, you've tried that. Okay. And it hasn't worked, that's right. The word righteousness is used uh, in Romans chapter 3. And it says, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. No one will be declared holy, if you like, by obeying God. Because you can't. You can't do enough. It's, it's like, um, it's like get, making a paper aeroplane. And thinking, gee, this is a cool paper aeroplane. You, you throw it and it does a loop, the loop and a twist and then it lands nicely. You get it. I'm really good. And so what you do is you take your paper aeroplane and you go to NASA and you go up to one of these space aeronautical engineers and you say, hey dude, look what I made. Whee! And he goes, good one mate. See that thing flying to the moon? I made that. You're boasting of your good works before God. That's pathetic. It's like boasting about a paper aeroplane before a NASA scientist. Forget it. It's going to get you nowhere. As the Bible always tells us. So that's no hope down that pathway. <laughs> we can never be good enough. We can never obey God enough. We're, we've got a problem. Sin it cannot be overcome by our own efforts, by religion. Yet there's still hope. And that, there's hope because of God, not because of us. So point three, God still wants us to be with him and like him. You see, part of God's holy character is his grace, his kindness, his undeserved kindness. My favourite verse in the Gospel of Luke 
is Luke chapter 6, verse 35, where it says about God, He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Think about that. Next time you're down on yourself because you've been a wicked sinner, think about that. God is kind to me. He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. How can that be? He should be squashing me. But he's kind to me. Astonishingly, God loves his enemies. Astonishingly, God loves unholy people and does something for them incredible. And the hint of what he does to solve the problem is in Isaiah 6. Um, Sorry, I lost it, but I'll, I'll go back to it. Because in Isaiah 6, remember, he sees God and he says, Whoa, I'm ruined, I can't come into your presence. But chapter 6, verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. See, God solves his problem. Now Isaiah can have a relationship with God, if you like, and be used by God. Atonement is the way God solves the problem. Atonement. That's why Jesus is sent. That's what 3.1 is all about. God provides holiness for us. We can't do it ourselves. He does it for us. How? Jesus is holiness for us. God sends the Holy One, Jesus, to make us holy by taking our sin on himself, taking our guilt away from us and having it punished in his death. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. If you're going to remember one verse of this talk, this is it. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified is another word for holy. It means the same thing. We have been made holy. It's happened past. We've been made holy. And so I can now come into the presence of God. Because my sin has been taken away. Its guilt was put on Jesus. It has been punished. God is not angry at me anymore. I stand right with Him. I can now approach Him freely. It's beautiful, friends. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22 talks about how now we have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish without accusation think about this right um, I hate computers computers are our worst enemies I mean they're getting a bit friendlier but they don't like us much because they never work when you want them to or need them to uh, I had an essay when I was at Bible college. I'd written an essay. It was finished. The essay was ready to print off. I was a novice at that time. I didn't really know what I was doing with computers because I'd only just bought them. Something happened. Clicked a few buttons. Gone. Essay. Gone. Document still there. Blank page. Essay. Where is it? I'm scrolling down. Ah, ah, it's gone. <laughs> Somehow I deleted the whole thing. <laughs> I think I'd control Alt, Control A. I'd alt it to justify it, but I invisibilized it somehow. <laughs> I pressed the wrong button. 
And I didn't know back then that you could do the rewind button, the undone button. Oh, I love that undone button. Praise the Lord for the unless you stop and think I've it. When you become a Christian, what do you do? Well, you've got a whole document of your life. Thousands of pages long. Every single sin you've thought, said or done. Streams of it. When you say, Lord Jesus, save me. He presses control. A. Deletes. Gone. Where's that list of sins? It's gone. It's a clean slate. Yeah. You're holy now. You're holy in God's sight. Those sins have been taken unto Jesus and he's been punished for them. You are safe. You are okay with God. It's wonderful. So Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. We can now freely approach God. It says we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Not by my religion. Not by my efforts. Not by me at all. By his death on the cross. I can confidently enter God's holy presence. Even though I'm a sinner. Isn't that beautiful friends? I can now be with God. When uh, JFK was president of the United States... A story is told of a young boy who uh, walks in. He's having a meeting in the Oval Office with all these um, international leaders. And this young boy walks off the street into the White House. Cute little kid. And he just sort of wanders through the, the White House halls. And he reaches one of the outer perimeter zones rooms. And there's these guys with their, um, what are they called? Ear, you know, those little earpieces. Probably listening to their iPods, but pretending to be, you know, serious sort of security. And they, they notice the boy and he just walks through down the hallway past them. And they don't do anything. And then he walks to, through a few other rooms and he, he actually comes to the actual door of the Oval Office and the security don't touch him. He walks in to the Oval Office where there's an internationally important meeting. JFK sitting in his desk. There's about 10 international leaders. They all look at him, the young, guy, the young boy. And then they just come back to what JFK is talking about. The young boy walks past the international leaders around his, the desk and he jumps up onto JFK's lap. It's his son, right? It's his son. No one else can do that. If I walked in off the street and tried to do that, <laughs> there would be alarms ringing. But because he was his son, he had confidence to enter the most holy place. That's our relationship with God, friends. Because of what Jesus has done, we can now be called God's forgiven children. We can come straight into his holy presence. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Wonderful friends. We'll come back to that in a minute. I want to skip over 3.2. That's tomorrow's talk. Okay. But Jesus is God's holiness for us. The Holy Spirit will work holiness in us. We'll see that tomorrow. Point four. I just wanted to show you the end picture. God's goal of being like him and with him will be fully experienced at the end of time. Revelation gives us a few little insights. Firstly, we will be with him. Oh, sorry. I'll look that up. In chapter 21, we will be with him. 
chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Now that, we've been waiting since Genesis chapter 3 for that to happen. But now the dwelling, it will be a real, close, full exposure intimacy. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and, and be their God. We will be with God. And we'll be like God. We'll be beautifully dressed. In uh, chapter 20, verse 20. That doesn't exist, that verse. Why did I put that down? That's why I didn't put up there. Good. Uh, there's the picture of the bride, beautifully dressed. I can't remember where it is. Maybe it's chapter 19, verse 20. That's so. Revelation 3, 1, verse 3. Anyway, um, it's still true. <laughs> Wherever it is, it's one of those chapters there. I just can't find it right now. We will be beautifully dressed like a bride, and that is, the picture, that is a picture of how blameless we will be, how white, how pure. So we will be, like, we will be with God and like God. That's what he made us to be like. But we rebelled against him, so we're not like him with him. And yet, in Jesus, he started fixing that process up. At the end, it will be fully realised. Friends, with that in mind, I just want to spend um, the last five minutes talking about something. We've got five minutes today, is that right? I want you to ask, ask yourself this question. This, is a whole, whole, this weekend's about holiness. And we are going to talk about personal holiness. But what I'd like you to do is... Rate your spiritual health. Just in your own mind. How would you rate your spiritual health at the moment? Let me ask you a few diagnostic questions to help you. In terms of your personal holiness. When was the last time you went to church? Or Bible study? Don't, don't answer out loud. This might be embarrassing. Before this weekend, when was your last quiet time? Do you have a regular... Prayer time. Do you stick to it? How long is it? Is it only a few minutes? Is it every day? When the offering goes around at church, how much do you give? Or is it just loose change? How often would you say you actually deliberately disobey God and ignore Him? When did you last get road rage? When did you last lust? When were you last jealous? Are you holding a grudge? Have you forgiven that person? Are you joyful because of Jesus? Or apathetic? When did you last have an evangelistic conversation? How would you rate your spiritual life? Out of ten, what would you give yourself out of ten? In terms of your personal holiness. How would you rate your spiritual life out of ten? I ask students this all the time especially my student leaders. And uh, they're quite honest with me. It's quite, uh, it's quite good, actually. Some of them will say, oh, I'm, I'm about a four out of ten, to be honest. Others will say five or you know, seven, maybe. And I'll say, thanks for your honesty, guys. I really appreciate that. And then I'll say, what about you, Scott? What are you? And I have to be honest with them, too. I mean, as leaders, we want to model honesty. So I say, well, I'm a ten. They look at me as if I'm the most arrogant pig in the universe. I said, well, you wanted me to be honest. My relationship with God is great. 
I've never been closer to him. I've never been more holy in his sight. Don't get me wrong, it's not because of my performance. It's not because I have succeeded in all those guilt-tripping questions I just asked you. No, 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 no. I'm a 10 out of 10 because of Jesus. And only because of Jesus. He gets me into God's presence. He makes me acceptable to God. He makes me holy before God. I just piggyback on in Him. I just go, get me in there, Jesus, because I can't get in there myself. Friends, the problem is we tend to measure our spiritual success on the basis of our performance rather than on the basis of Christ's performance. And if you do that, you're going to give up being a Christian before too long. You're going to be depressed because you can never be good enough. You're not going to be joyful because you don't understand what Jesus has done for you and how good it is. God is completely happy with you. Do you believe that? He loves you. You are 100% acceptable to Him. You are totally spiritually connected to God. You are holy because of what Jesus has done to get you into God's good books, into His presence. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 reflects on this as well. And it says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Not because of your own holiness. Not because of how good you've been. But because of Christ. Now that is a liberating truth, friends. It liberates us from a number of traps, like the performance trap, where you think, well, I'm okay with God because of what I do, and I've done a lot. That's nonsense. You're okay with God because of Jesus. Or the experience and feelings trap. You say, I know God is for me because I experience His love in my feelings. Or I feel that God is present with me and that's how I know I'm connected. Well, what if you don't feel like it? What if you wake up on the wrong side of bed? What if you've eaten too much pizza or you've had a bad day at work? Does that mean you're not in God's presence anymore? Does that not mean He doesn't love you anymore? Of course not. Friends, when it comes to holiness, we must trust the gospel. We must trust Jesus and what He's done for our acceptance with God. Not your feelings or your experience or your performance. This is foundational, friends. If you're going to understand the holy life we are to live in response to this, you've got to get this bit right. Okay? So, let me finish by reading Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 again. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are so kind to us. We are unholy wretches. We've rebelled against you in so many ways. We deserve your judgment. We do not deserve to be with you, for we are not like you in any way. And yet, in your amazing love and kindness, you've sent Jesus to fix the problem. So we can now stand holy before you. You view us as holy people because we are in Christ. We are trusting in Him. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Help us to keep remembering that. When we fail, when things aren't perfect, help us to keep looking to the cross for our great assurance. And may this give us joy and desire to love and serve you in the rest of our lives. Amen.